0: hi vanessa
1: hi dom how goes
0: uh, decent but you're overjoyed
1: i got some good news I don't want to jinx it. I'm not going to tell the the podosphere what my good news is, but they can just sit content knowing that I have some potentially good news.
0: Ah, the cheerful member of the pod gets more cheerful still.
1: Which is good because i
0: Contradiction is heightened.
1: If you, if we, I mean, part part of the reason why we're recording now is because we're both in a cheery mood. But if you had caught me at any other part of this week, I was just Miss Krabby Pants all week. So that now is a nice uh, change of pace for me.
0: So, okay. So let's start with proper introductions.
1: Uh, we are talking to Robin Hanson, uh, Associate Professor of Economics at George Mason University, uh, the Research Associate at the Future of Humanity Institute at Oxford.
0: And the co-author, along with Kevin Simler, of The Elephant in the Brain, which is the center of our conversation.
1: Oh, but we also talk about his other book, A Little Bit, called The Age of M. Um, but yes, the vast majority of this con- conversation is based on The Elephant in the Brain, which you want to describe it, um.
0: Before I describe it, here's a question that I have for you that I had immediately after reading the book, and I told myself I shall save it to the to our intro, and then it Holy was a shit. year later. Yeah,
1: I can't believe you remembered this. You did? You did? You write it down? Nope. Wow.
0: It's not a sophisticated question, but
1: it's it's been like a little a little uh, I won't say an elephant in your brain, but a little a little brain worm hidden away in your brain.
0: It has already been spoiled to you because I think I asked it to Andrew Heaton. Ah, the maybe it was actually when I was on his podcast. Now that I think about it, so maybe you didn't listen to it. The story of the Emperor's New Clothes. Yes, which I don't think. Needs repeating. In the end, when the, or right before the end, when the masses start playing along with the king's either bullshit or delusion, what motivates people in your mind, in your reading of or understanding of this piece of folklore or whatever? What motivates people to go along with the lie?
1: Okay, so actually, I think we do have to revisit the story because in my mind, it ends with everybody turning against the king because they realize the folly. Is that not how the story ends?
0: Only at the very end when that one kid shouts, the emperor has no clothes. Okay. Until then, until then, all the adults in the room, the courtiers, the public, they go along with it.
1: Um, I mean, I would assume it's there's the same reason why most people kind of like nod and Giggle along when somebody in power says something. It's just that's they're in charge, and you don't want to ruffle the the status quo. And it might be it might be a fear based thing, or it might just be a you don't want to get in trouble kind of a thing, or stir the stir the boat. That's not the expression. <laughs> rock the boat. <laughs> you don't want to rock the boat, so you hmm. just are like, ah, I'm not gonna be the one that fucking that fucking says the thing, because if everyone else here is, I'm just going to go along.
0: So I always interpreted it as linked to the original premise, the way that the king was tricked. If you remember, the tailors come to him and say, we have this magical fabric that can only be seen by uh, leaders true of heart or wise. and. Obviously, the king can't say that he doesn't see the fabric.
1: Right. That would that would mean admitting he's not true of heart.
0: Right. And I always took it as a contagion.
1: Ah, uh, every. Does, but does he say that to everybody as he presents
0: it? Right. That's. The, I, I, so I never put that thought into it. I guess I always imagined just everybody know knowing about the uh, catching rumor of this special fabric, and then. Oh, oh my God! I can't see it, but I can't have others uh-huh. thinking that I can't see it. So I need to nod, and then everybody else says, "Well, I guess if everybody else is seeing that, that I right. guess I I can't be the stupid one, so I need to go along with it too." Uh huh. And that just catches on. So the way they use it in the book, similar in Hanson and the Elephant in the Brain, is as a study case of signaling, social signaling, by which the courtiers are. Showing their peers, we get it. We're not playing the game of honesty or accountability. We're playing the game of personal ambition. And personal ambition dictates that I go along with the emperor's madness. In fact, it becomes a selection mechanism by which the savvier courtiers get to exploit the, the ones who are a little behind on the game and point out, look, this this guy is not loyal enough. And if you are a listener of this podcast, you can probably understand why this conversation was so interesting to me. The insanities on the right, especially as they involve the Trump cult and the insanities of the left in, in terms of the ideological madness that we talk about a lot. Both of them are very much that What seems like just an ideological radicalization across the board can also just be seen as a social evolutionary practice to weed out the unsavvy players and bring down competition in an evolutionary environment that is not at all about virtue or truth or justice, but about ambition and evolutionary opportunity coming from the perspective of social psychology and evolutionary psychology, the book really digs into this relationship between the way that the individual understands the rules of the games that society is playing and how to signal that they are privy to the rules, that they're going along with them, but also finding their ways to cheat within them.
1: And if I'm not mistaken, this is the you're, This is in all aspects aspects of life, right? We're not just talking about in places where you have to placate the person in power, right? You're just saying that in general, there is a a web of social awareness and cues that drives most mo- most of human existence.
0: Right. The book poses a problem. Why? does so much of what we do seem to be in conflict with our purported motivations, with the purported goals? And it tries to answer it by getting at the real motives that catalyze human behavior. And then it goes through the exercise of trying to explain a variety of human activities. And by activities, I mean anything from Politics to laughter and comedy through the lens of the the more selfish evolutionary motivations that activate us. it takes on questions about social dynamics and manipulation, power games, and one of my most favorite aspects of all of this the role that self-deception plays into allowing us to play these convoluted, complex, self-serving social games.
1: Mm. Good sentence. (laughs) Convoluted, complex social games. Yes.
0: Oh, wow. (laughs) Very Uh, sibilant. uh
1: And alliterative.
0: Okay, so small warning, though. We got the book a year ago after our interview with Daniel Roy. If you listen to that interview, at the end, post-credits, we played the entire magic trick that he did for us live at the end of which he actually gave us two books, one of which was this.
1: You, We did the interview with Daniel Roy. We got the book. You read it in days, sped through it. We set up the interview mere days after that. It was all very speedy at first and then we just hit a huge technical wall and the technical wall just
0: snowballed. And And to be clear, Vanessa's Euphemism of technical wall <laughs> means we totally fucked up during the recording. And and the, then in it,
1: the editing, there were many fuck ups.
0: Yeah, the quality that we started with was not. Did not do justice to the interview, unfortunately. Not the worst audio we've ever had. I'm sure listeners will be uh, kind enough to remind us, but definitely below what we expect of ourselves. And um, it was all our fault because we sometimes are human too. So with that, you are sonically prepared to dive into this interview. Um, We actually included the beginning from our um, green room, I suppose, where we talked to Hanson about his current work, which looked more into how, evolutionary imperatives can sometimes manifest in contradictory ways. For instance, our evolutionary goal of procreation can be completely detached from our desire to have sex. And ultimately, in a way, we can satisfy the immediate goal while undermining the underlying evolutionary imperatives. That's a Quite an inefficient way for nature to operate. That seems to be sometimes self-destructive when you consider movements like antinatalism, for instance. Um, so we started talking about this and then shifted into the elephant in the brain, which again you really should read. I just love that book.
1: Shall we? Uh, well, first let's tell the listeners, the good li- listeners, what they should do to to help this this little this little pod of ours.
0: If you want us to avoid. Uh, audio engineering disasters like the one we encountered with this episode
1: slash hire someone to fix our <laughs> our tape
0: thus avoiding similar disaster that is the way Prying control away from us <laughs> then then please support us we have please. we have a nice little um piggy bank on the Substack Substack and you can Give us as much as you want, if you want.
1: Mm-hmm. Little, little Christmas and Hanukkah presents for Adam and Vanessa.
0: Christmas and Hanukkah schmeckles. We provide some additional content and it would help us uh, grow. But if you can't afford to because inflationary times call for deflationary measures, I, I don't know, then uh, please still share us with your friends and enemies. And um, if you don't mind, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts because that kind of helps. That's really cool. That helps. A lot. A ton. We are com.
1: Subscribe for not just the pod, but the newsletter.
0: Oh, yes. The newsletter where I, uh, we didn't even, yeah, we didn't talk about the newsletter, but we, we got some controversial responses from oh, the newsletters. Oh,
1: yes. well, now people are going to run and subscribe because we we talk about the, the Twitter controversy. Oh, the
0: hordes are just going to... V- v- Feel the streets running over each other, <laughs> climbing on top one another in order to get to the Well, what letter. is the
1: Twitter controversy, they'll wonder? And, then, uh, and off they'll trot.
0: Um, and
2: with that... Robin Hanson. Our preferences are just evolution offering these various little heuristics and, you know, tricks. That's how evolution sort of produced values in us. And so it's a hodgepodge of of heuristics that in our evolutionary past made some sense and sort of pushed us roughly in the right direction. But, you know, a a more effective thing for evolution to do would be to like, put it in our heads directly. You want grandchildren. (laughs) That's the thing you want. (laughs) Figure out how to get that. Right. And you, you know, you would think that would just be more robust, reliable way to get creatures to have many descendants in a wide range of contexts is if they consciously wanted that. But that's not who we are.
0: Mm.
2: And now all those heuristics that in the past mm. told us to have grandchildren today are not doing that.
1: Indeed. People are indeed choosing not to have kids more and more and more, at right. least in developed
0: nations. Right, right. We figured out a way to get a thing that evolution tells us that we want, which is sex, without the children.
2: Fighting. Right. Right, which, which from our point of view is great, but evolution's gonna, you know, if it could be there kicking itself, it would yeah. be doing that, right? It'd be saying, oops, that was a mistake. Let's try that again. But in the long run, evolution wins, right? It gets to try lots of things, and eventually something will get tried that, that wins, and that'll take over. I mean, the idea is that in the long run, in the future, there's gonna be a lot of room for a lot of new kinds of evolution. Yeah. That is, we're gonna become more artificial creatures, you know, artificial intelligences bodies made in ro- robot factories, etc.
0: <laughs> so you're seeing more active human intervention in evolution? Well,
2: it's, it's less about whether it's human intervention or anyone's intervention. Just, there's just a lot of possibilities for how our descendants can be constructed and arranged that they will try out. They will just explore the big space.
0: But I'm, I'm just if we're looking at a vast expense of possibilities for the way that evolution carries on in in a way that maybe there is even more human intervention in it. Why would grandchildren be a value? Are we are we are we just talking before we start? We usually just slip into it. Okay, uh, that's fine. <laughs> but yeah, we thought to get into these topics actually at the end, but but we're already there. Why ruin the flow?
2: Um, oh, so the key idea, like, like from an analysis theory point of view, you want to say what would get selected? People can Create different kinds of descendants. They can make memes. They can make babies. They can make buildings. They can make robots. uh, They can make them in different ways. They can combine together in different ways. They can use machines. They can use biology. They can use computers, etc. But the key underlying analysis tool is what gets selected. (laughs) There's a bunch of different ones. Which ones would there end up being more of? (laughs) Mm. And that's the thing you're asking. Which thing, if it existed, would there be more of? And so. It seems like, you know, it would be having descendants of whatever form. Definitionally, it is
0: replicatory.
2: Right. The descendants could be all sorts of things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it's whatever would produce more of them would be the thing that wins out. So, you know, presumably it'll be machines as opposed to floppy biological bodies that win, in which case. And and you can have all sorts of coalitions and combinations, right? So you want to ask what packages will be most successful at promoting the package. And you know, if you have a part of a package that today is winning, but the rest of the package is losing, well, in the longer run, it doesn't continue. All
0: right, so, I have just one small question about this before elephant in the brain, from the perspective of an academic who's looking at things that will only be, you know bear out thousands of years into the future. Is it frustrating that you're you're not going to get your <laughs> test? Well, the, the
2: answered. Mo- I mean, right. it's a bit frustrating. I mean, I've got a shot at lasting a long time. So I'm, I'm a cryonics customer, for example, where uh, they will freeze my head uh, when I <laughs> medical science gives up to me and then maybe I'll come back and last later. And that's the topic of my other book, The Age of M, Brain Emulations. So it's possible I come back later. But I think the more frustrating part is because we won't know for a long time the field of people who talks about these things isn't very well disciplined by you know, who is right or wrong. So you just have to suffer a lot of bullshit. <laughs> Distance yourself from mm. people who just don't seem to be thinking very carefully because they've got an audience and they can because, they, again, it's not very disciplined. And then a lot of people go into wishful thinking mode where mm. as long as there's no other discipline that will correct their thing, they might as well talk about what they wish would happen or what they fear would happen. So that that gets frustrating because I want to talk to the people who are just trying to be accurate about like, but what will happen.
0: Where in this area do you feel like that type of contagion is... is- most harmful, where you feel like you're actually losing potential public attention because of just bad ideas circulating?
2: Well, in the area of futurism, I have to say, like, mm. inspirational speakers would be especially less accurate, right? And, and it's right flagged there in the name. Accurate speaker versus inspirational speaker. If you, if you say, hey, come to my talk, I'm going to give you the most reliable, accurate picture of what's likely to happen here. That's less fun than the inspirational speaker.
0: But can you point like an area that you feel has suffered the the costs of that?
2: All across the board. Yeah, pretty much anything that's, you know, not short-term.
1: I feel like I have to stick up for <laughs> for someone who, I have a podcast called City of the Future.
2: Okay, where great. <laughs> oh, well, cool. Well, that's been... <laughs> where I
1: think big about what could be possible, and it is intentionally is- inspirational. We okay. Say it's inspirational, I'm sorry, not I, did, I did not know that. I'm <laughs> not <laughs> no, trying to no pick problem. a fight here. No, definitely not trying to pick a fight. Aspirational and inspirational, okay. I think, is, is, the, is the intention. But then, then it would
2: be fun to talk about, okay, well, what, what are the differences between aspirational yes. views of a future city and a realistic view of a future city.
1: Yes. And and I think there's room for both. And I, I do think that both do diff, very different but very important things, right? I mean, e- I, maybe even in your own work, you might say that occasionally you make bold claims that may not necessarily yet be backed up by all the research in the world, but it's important to make those bold claims because well, otherwise we're going to restrict our thinking about... So, so
2: I, I would that, sort of right? more give bold designs or bold mm. proposals, I'd say. Look, mm. here is an idea. And if we pursue this, look at all the potential. I'm not telling mm. you we will pursue it, but I'm saying maybe we should. Let's go right. try to explore this thing and make the distinction there. Like what would be a good idea? What looks promising? I can get inspired by that. But I want to be mm. careful talking yes. about the things that could happen if if we put the effort into it.
0: Uh, I'm firmly in the pessimist camp generally. So I, I just want more more doomsayers.
2: That's the opposite side. I mean, some people are just eager for the most negative, dramatic image of the future that they can find that inspires them in a different way.
0: It's it's (laughs) an an aesthetic, (laughs) aesthetic preferences. Mm. Right.
2: And if you look at more than intellectual. And in fact, that's much more common in, say, science fiction or fantasy or anime or et cetera, dystopian, apocalyptic features they have good visuals right
1: (laughs) Mm. yeah there's something very compelling about it
0: about about our collective doom yeah
1: dystopia yeah Yeah.
0: (laughs) okay so as i mentioned a previous guest of ours gifted us this book and i just picked it up and couldn't couldn't stop reading it and finished us in well i want to thank your previous guest thank you daniel roy for sharing it with us I, i guess let's start in the beginning so the elephant in the brain your work with kevin simler you are Trying to develop an argument about some of the evolutionary motives that that guide human behavior, that we have strong committed blind spots towards, and that we are loath to acknowledge. And before we get into the nitty gritty of it, like I, I kind of want to know how you you got into exploring this topic, and which also gives you uh, a chance to give us a brief uh, elevator bio of yourself and, and your approach. And then we'll start drilling in.
2: So over decades, as a social scientist, I kept running into these puzzling things, things where we have a theory about why people do things, and the theory says X, and then we look at people doing Y. And so I've been collecting these puzzles, these ways in which people seem to be doing things different than our standard theories would predict, and trying to wonder, well, what's going on here? What what sort of explanations? And of course, there are often a wide range of explanations offered. Many of them are sort of of the epicycle epicycle form, where you take the usual theory and you add some more things on top of it, and that could be right. But you might want to look for some more basic mistake you've been making, (laughs) a simpler mistake you've been making, that could explain a whole bunch of these puzzles all at once. And so it turns out uh, that there is such a thing. So our book is saying, oh, hey, everybody who's been trying to say human behavior, we're just making a very basic mistake right at the beginning. And if you just try to switch on that mistake, things make a lot more sense. (laughs) The structure of the book is 10 different areas in which there's a usual assumption about why we're doing things, and then a bunch of puzzles that don't make sense from that point of view, and then a better theory and how the better theory fits these puzzles. But that's the last two-thirds of the book. And the first third of the book is trying to make it plausible in your mind that this key alternative assumption we're going to offer isn't crazy.
0: And we're going to go into a few of those examples, one that really right. uh, stuck with me. But first, I want to give you a chance to make that underlying thesis. What was that right. fundamental mistake,
2: as you so, said? So the, the key mistake is that people make generous assumptions about people's motives. People are inclined to be generous about their own motives and of their associates. And so they look for a positive spin reason why they might be doing things. Our most basic strategy here is to give less generous assumptions about the basic motive about why you do something. Mm. To say, look, your core motive in this area of your life is kind of selfish. You would like other people to think well of you is one of the most common motives. So if we say, why do you go to school? Well, you go to school to learn stuff. Learning stuff would be useful. And later on in life, you can use the stuff you learned and you'll be more productive and we'll all be better off. Yeah, yes. What if the main reason you go to school is to show off, just to show that you're better than other people? Well, that's not as praiseworthy. It doesn't feel like a proud thing you want to say in your graduation ceremony. Hey, everybody, I proved I was better than everybody else. So hot, But what if that's what's really going on? That's an example of a more realistic, more selfish, less pretty motive that if you just go back to basics and say, what if that's the main reason we're doing something? Maybe a bunch of these puzzles could be explained.
1: How did you first hit on that hypothesis that it's probably our selfish motivations that are that are the, the real kind of puzzle
0: solver there? Right. Is there an initial problem that yes. really <laughs> made the light click?
2: There was so I got a PhD at Caltech in social science. So Caltech is very mathematical and theoretical, and so I'd learned a lot of pretty abstract concepts and, and game theory and, and tools. And I got a postdoc in health policy at University of California Berkeley, interdisciplinary postdoc where they would put sociologists and political scientists and economists together. And the reason they had chosen me was I was someone who knew a lot of theory but didn't know a lot of like details, and they were going to bring that sort of person in to show them a lot about the details of health policy. So I had this two-year health policy postdoc, and the first six months of that was a detailed review of what we know about medicine and health policy. And in that detailed review, I knew sort of the usual abstract theory about medicine and health. And then I was looking at all these details about medicine and health, and these two did not match. They don't fit. There's a big conflict between those two. And that was the initial presenting puzzle. What what the heck is going on? Mm
0: -hmm. Can you give us a specific uh, example of something that
2: didn't align? Well, well, sure. So the most dramatic thing is that when we have randomized experiments, where we give some people more medicine than others, i.e. we make the price lower, make it more accessible, or they're in a place where they just happen to do more. Whenever we see variations like that, some people doing more medicine than others, the usual consistent result is that the people who get more medicine are not healthier. The whole core of the idea of medicine is like it helps your health and of course it's complicated and expensive and there's risk and you need to evaluate quality. So the whole usual edifice of an analyzing medicine is that, well, it's there to help your health. But in fact, people who get more medicine are not healthier. That just really questions the whole structure, like, but, but, but what's, they, what's going on here? What are they doing if they're not here for health? Because that's, of course, if you ask people, why do you go to the doctor? Why do you go to the health hospital, etc.? That's what they will tell you. Well, of course, I'm there to get healthier. And that's what we usually think. It's what I've always thought.
0: <laughs> in, in terms of your evolving the, the thesis, you have this moment, you have this dissonance. Right. When do you actually start to uh, flesh it out?
1: And how do you start to lay the blame on the feet of the selfish motives? Like that's the piece I'm still not quite getting.
2: So uh, evolutionary psychology opened me up to people might wanting other things and people might not being aware of what they want. That's a key part of the thing to explain here. So once you say, Mm -hmm. oh, well, medicine is not giving people health. They say they want health. Now you have to explain what are they doing and why don't they know? That's going to have to be a key part of the explanation because... If you just say, well, they, they wanted to go to, you know, buildings with pastel colored hallways, then you might say, well, why don't they know that's what they're doing? And Why isn't there a cheaper way to do that? Surely we could just make you know, roomfuls of pastel hallways and white coats in much cheaper ways than we do in hospitals. So like ignorance is certainly one of the categories of theories you might go for. They say, well, people think they're getting this out of it, but it's hard to estimate. So maybe they're misinformed about what they're getting. But um, ignorance explanations get harder and more tortured the more people you postulate being ignorant about the same thing over the longer time. With medicine, we are talking a consistent pattern in behavior that goes back thousands of years across the entire world, across the entire area of medicine. That's harder to to sell the story that they've all been making the same mistake for this long time.
0: Before you go into your explanation, I'm, I'm just proposing another challenge for you to dismantle. There's the propagandistic effect, right? Because because we're living in a period of constant development or at least the illusion of constant scientific growth and development that people are under the impression, well, going into a hospital today is categorically different or essentially different from going there 10 years ago. The or to that I'm the getting medicine now man is, is, or
1: whoever, the shaman, right. whatever. Forget about it, a yeah. thousand years ago. I right. right. talk about
0: 10 years ago. Right. Right? We are now getting better care, the illusion suggests, um, or the impression that we're getting from reading in newspapers about new research and new studies and new techno- technologies that are being developed is significantly superior to what we would have been able to enjoy 10 years ago.
2: So if you say in the past it was crap and now maybe it isn't crap, uh, and that's why we're doing it now. You have to say, but then why did they do it then, right? You've got thousands of years up until 10 years ago. That's a lot of behavior to explain. Maybe now we don't have to explain the last 10 years, but we still got to explain all the other years, right?
0: Yeah, I guess my theory <laughs> is that there is a, a constant bolstering of our ignorance by by external forces. But I guess also those external forces require some explanation. Why, why are we keep telling ourselves that, that our right. technologies are evolving?
2: Now you know if you want to go this direction I would think let's find other things that people have just been consistently wrong about for thousands of years. <laughs> Mm. Okay. And then maybe make an analogy to that, right? So maybe you think, look, marriage has always been crappy for the whole of all all of through history. People have been told this romantic story about marriage and it's all crap. But they always been fooled generation after generation, right? You could tell a story like that. Or war, you know. We keep telling kids that war is glorious and they keep buying it, but <laughs> not until they get out there that they realize how terrible war is. But by that point it's too late, right? Those are analogies you might try to make. We might try to go into one of those stories and say, are they really true? In what sense are they true? And if you could make a story like that work, then I might want to come back to medicine. Okay, so let's see if we can make a story like that work for medicine because we've got some concrete examples to work with. But if you can't find me any examples anywhere else of people who for thousands of years been consistently fooled by the same big part of their lives, then I'm going to go, that's not so plausible here either.
0: And um, taking it from your book, it's just, uh, I it- when you're talking about people have been fooled by this for thousands of years we're talking about people n- not just you know going through bad medicine but also consistently having the impression that their medicine is useful that people yes. people's conviction and that bloodletting is the shit
2: for instance <laughs> i mean we now spend 20% of gdp in the us one out of every 5 dollars goes for medicine wow. which which is enormous we're not we've just doubled down like we've decided this is much better than all of the ancestors did. They, they only spent one or 2% of, it, of their income on it, right? And we are spending lots, lots
0: more. And just to clear another hurdle out of the way, you're, cause people will be hearing what you're saying right now without reading the book and say, wait, but we do know that our our um, life expectancy has yeah. improved. We do know that people are, are sturdier and, and taller right. and healthier. So clearly things have
2: improved. Something has improved. The question is what? <laughs> Mm-hmm. So right. we, there is a large literature on this. And I think the youth literature has usually come to the consensus that medicine is at best a small part of increasing mm-hmm. in lifespans. There's sanitation, nutrition, wealth, and many other ways, lower stress. There's just a lot of ways in which life today is better and that can make people live longer. And medicine may have a small contribution to that. Mm-hmm.
1: That's a helpful (laughs) (laughs) point to make, actually, too, because I was thinking the exact same thing. Like, well, wait a minute. Right. Well, I mean, that's a problem with
2: taking credit. A lot of people want to take credit for all the things that have improved. And so you have to wonder, like, who deserves the credit?
0: Right. Okay. So we've taken out these objections out of the way. Now you're thinking about, so what actually are the motives? So before we actually start talking specifically about how you interpret the current state of medicine, I'm going to put that discussion on pause. Let's Take a step back and look at the abstract. So you said you went to evolutionary psychology to eke out the, the motives, the actual motives that operate on, on human behavior. The menu of motives. Right, exactly. So what's right. the menu that you found?
2: Right. So evolutionary psychology says that our ancestors, you know, faced hostile environment and difficult environments and that their major part of the environment that mattered was other people. So human minds evolved to deal with other people around them. And you want to say, well, what are the most important things they have to deal with with these other people? One of the things people have to do is choose their alliances. They have to decide who they're with and who they're not with. And they need to show their allies that they are allies. So choosing allies and signaling allegiance, loyalty to them, is a big part of what our ancestors had to do. Another big part was to impress each other. Mm. Other people would choose them as allies if they were impressed. So... You know, two big categories of things that come out of simple evolutionary psychology is because our main environment was each other, and we tended to form alliances. And the people who weren't in the alliances lost out compared to the ones who were. Then our ancestors needed to get other people to ally with them, so they need to be impressive. And then they need to convince other people that they actually are aligned with them to show loyalty. And then they need to be a good judge of these things and other people: who's impressive, who's loyal. So. Evolutionary psychology says a big part of our minds must be designed for that problem.
0: To put the taglines on it, we're talking about political interactions and, and accruing social status.
2: Right, and another part of it is that a key distinction of humans versus their previous ancestors is humans use language and weapons to enforce norms. So these rules about what we were supposed to do and not supposed to do. And we could enforce those much more strongly and that allowed us to have larger groups And so a big part of our ancestors lives was trying to make sure we weren't found violating a norm. (laughs) and being ready to accuse somebody else who's a rival of violating a norm. If there's a norm saying we're supposed to say something and do something about it. So this is part of our evolutionary heritage. So
0: And a crit- critical point that, that you do want to stay on, norms require the ability to punish violations. And that's a crucial point of it because it right. seems, seems so obvious, <laughs> but you know when we're talking about American politics today, we <laughs> we see how easy it is or how, how airy and nebulous norms are without the ability
2: to enforce them. Absolutely, so... That's why you were afraid of being accused of a norm violation because the punishment might be invoked on you and why it would be an opportunity if you could accuse a rival of a norm violation because then you could get them out of your way. And so a key part of norms is a lot of the norms we have reference motivations. Motivations are an important part of norms. So if I accidentally hit you and I could argue that I didn't intend to hit you, yes, I did hit you and I'm sorry, but I did not intend to, I'm much more easily excused than if I have to admit, yeah, I really wanted to hit you. I'm sorry, but that was just really what I wanted to do. (laughs) That's much more of a norm violation. Mm -hmm. You're not supposed to intend to hit somebody and then hit them. Uh, We're going to punish that more severely. And so one of the major ways you try to defend yourself from norm violations is to have a way to tell the story that you had good motives or did not at least have bad motives. So in fact, one of the major things our mind is doing all the time is collecting a story of what we've been doing and why. So that if anybody should challenge anything we do, we can say, this is why I was doing it. And this is why that was a good reason. Mm -hmm. I wasn't violating the norms. I might have accidentally done something wrong, but I wasn't trying to.
1: Today, there's like a lot of conversation about, for example, let's take like anti-racism or something like that, where the outcomes of your actions are more more important than your intention and the kind of like the knots that people end up uh, tying themselves in when they're trying to explain, but I didn't mean anything and it wasn't what I want. And there's like this, there is like this really strong tension, I feel like at play between people feel so compelled to justify themselves and what was inner happening in their inner mind to justify all kinds of different actions.
2: I mean, we just very commonly do take that into account. So law is, of course, a major form today wherein we accuse people of violations and they defend themselves. And of course, they are often trying to show that they did not intend to harm. And so a lot of crimes do require showing intent Mm. in order to be guilty of the crime. So manslaughter, for example, is different than murder.
1: (laughs) Mm -hmm.
2: Manslaughter is not intending to kill somebody, right? Murder has much higher punishment. So all across our world of norms and laws, You know, intent makes a big difference. Of course, if you really want something to stop, you might push for saying, in this case, it's such an important thing that we can't trust our judgment about their intentions. We're just going to have to set down a a crude rule that we're just, you know, stop all violations. And because we're afraid of too many excuses, that people are slipping by our, our enforcement. So that's more a signature of somebody sort of upping the ante and saying, no, this is really super important.
0: Right, if anything, it's the reaction to the understanding that we are so good at coming up with excuses and creating plausible deniability for ourselves that at some point, screw it, your your intentions no longer matter.
2: Right, but that's an exception, so you'll have to ramp up the rhetoric if you want right, to right. get people to adopt that as an exception.
0: And and the problems in that are, are even too obvious to recount. But um, <laughs> I wonder, there's another interesting thing about looking at norms and the norms that run across societies, and some of which you, you list in the book, is that every good law that um, existed or dominated a society for an historical period is a good indication of the sort of crimes that were being committed. Norms are a good sure. clue as to what are the... the norms, voters,
2: right. What things are going wrong.
0: What where, where things are going wrong. And also, what are the motivations that, but we are, that people were uncomfortable with? So there are definitely norms against rape, and that's because obviously the, the the sex motive is one of the biggest ones. But there are also more subtle norms like against bragging, which oh. which is a fine point that I didn't think about. It is a cross-cultural um, tendency to, to dislike braggadocious behavior because you see that the motivation there is your own
2: social climbing at the expense of others. Right now. A thing to notice for things like bragging, we have a lot of norms where we will punish, if not through law, just through social pressure, norm violations, but we actually allow enormous evasion of the norm. We we know that people are bragging all the time and we see them bragging all the time, but they just have to go through this extra effort to sort of be a little indirect about it. (laughs) Mm. And once they've gone through that extra effort, we'll, we'll, we'll give them a pass. And so an interesting thing about a lot of norms is that We aren't that eager to enforce them, and we'll let a lot of people slide as long as they give us an excuse not to enforce it. So a standard example we talk about in the book is people in public with alcohol in a paper bag. The police are supposed to arrest people for drinking alcohol in public in many places. They don't want to. It's not their priority. It's not what makes them proud to get up in the morning. So if they could avoid doing that, they would. But hey, it's the rule, they've got to do it. But if you give the police an excuse, you have the bottle in a paper bag in public, the police know what's in the paper bag. I mean, who else, why does anybody ever drink out of a bottle in a paper bag in public, except that it might be alcohol? But nevertheless, it gives them an excuse to say, I didn't know it was alcohol. I just saw the paper bag and they can go on their way. And so this is true for a lot of norms that we, are not actually that eager to enforce them. And we're mm. quite willing to let people slide as long as they give us an excuse to pretend we didn't see.
0: And that brings right. in the point of uh, the, the idea of common knowledge.
2: Right, right. So if, if everybody knows that everybody knows that it's alcohol in the paper bag, then we can say, how could you not know? And we won't let them pretend they don't know. A lot of the things we do, according to our stories of our motivations, are kind of transparent moves that shouldn't fool anybody. <laughs> but they do. And so the story here is, well, they're not really fooling anyone. They're just giving people the excuse to pretend to be fooled because plausible deniability. Right. They they don't really want to enforce these things. And so you're just letting them get away with that.
0: Right. Which is incredibly interesting when you start applying it to so many areas in life where you're seeing that as long as we have that excuse that I didn't force you to acknowledge what I was doing, even though you know and I know that you know. As long as we can right. say that, but I don't know that you know that I know that I know and all that, or that there's at least some layer of removal between right. how much acknowledged this shared information is, then we're suddenly all comfortable. Like the, 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 we cannot, right. the, the difference between a normal conversation and uh, an embarrassing social faux pas can hinge on how convincingly we were able to, um, to hide the common knowledge of the situation.
2: So like the first chapter in our book, when we talk about specific things is body language. And there we we point out that people use body language, but they aren't able to articulate what they're doing with it. And they're really kind of resistant to acknowledging that they are doing anything with their body language. And part of that is because the thing they're doing is something they'd like to deny. So for example, as we say, people flirt with their bodies, but they're often flirting with someone they're not supposed to be flirting with. (laughs) And so they don't want to acknowledge that they're flirting. And of course, It might be pretty obvious to observers that they are flirting, but as long as they can't point to a very particular violation, like touching their hand or something to say clearly that they're flirting, then you might uh, let it go. And so we are not aware of our motivations with body language because that gives us plausible deniability that we did not intend to flirt. We were not flirting. We were just talking and having an animated fun conversation. And that's all that was happening. And so this sort of a, a prototype, the first simple example of how you might not know why you're doing something because that gives you an advantage in denying what you're doing.
1: So there's a level of of self-deception Obviously, It's like, no, of course, I would never do that. I'm a faithful person, so I'm not flirting. But there's also one would ass- one would assume that there's a level of you're, tr- you're trying to deceive the world just kind of, you're not getting very far because you're only deceiving yourself in that scenario.
2: You're giving them the excuse not to call you on it, which is mm. the main thing you want, right? Mm. It's all right if you violate the norm as long as they don't challenge you or call you on it. And you're making it a little harder for them to do that and so that they won't bother and then you get away with it.
0: Mm. Let's go to that point of self-deception because yeah. that's another interesting chapter in your book. And in fact, I think that's one of the main reasons that Daniel shared that book with us, who is a sleight of a hand artist. You make the case that the blind spot that hides away this motives is part of the mechanism to make our deniability stronger.
2: So we like a lot this analogy between your conscious mind and a press secretary. So... If you think about, say, the president or, or, you know, big corporation, there's a press secretary whose job it is to talk to outsiders and to present a view of the firm or nation, et cetera, to outsiders. That press secretary doesn't present a completely realistic, accurate picture. (laughs) They're trying to spin a positive picture. Now, from their point of view, they can be very sincere in... That positive view, as long as they don't look too carefully at how they're being optimistic and giving it the benefit of the doubt. And the idea is that your conscious mind is such a press secretary. That is, you like to think that you are in charge of your mind and that you are deciding what you do, but a different view is that you are the press secretary. Your job is to watch what happens and make up reasons why you did it that look good, not to know why why you're actually doing things. And so in that sense, self-deception is the difference between the president and the press secretary. Maybe the president knows why he's doing things. You're not the president. You're the press secretary who doesn't know why you do things. That's the self-deception. Your job isn't to know why you do things. Your job is to present this good image. And so the idea is you're constantly watching what you're doing. And for everything you do, you're saying, oh, here's a good reason I had for doing that. You're telling this whole story about what I was doing and why. And that's your job. Your job isn't to be accurate. Your job is to be ready with the good start.
0: This is another one of those areas where you actually shifted away from a, a, a conventional interpretation of that mechanism of self-deception. The one that says we, we deceive ourselves in order to protect ourselves from our worst behavior, to not feel all the horror and anxiety that is lurking inside of us, but rather,
2: as you quote, the better to deceive others. It's better when you don't know you're deceiving. Right, right. You can act honestly offended that anybody would accuse you of such a thing. Right. You know, pure just have their interests at heart. You're such a good friend. Uh, how, How dare they question that way
1: I feel like we should loop back to that initial premise then with the with the medicine example just to kind of close that because someone who's been following the thread of this conversation is probably now ready to understand when when you brought up that example and you were seeing this problem that just didn't make sense now when you apply this lens of okay people are selfishly motivated then how do you explain the example that we all go to, to get medicine to supposedly get
2: healthier.
0: What's really going on there?
2: So an analogy is Valentine's chocolate. In our society, traditionally on Valentine's, if you have a relationship special with someone, you might give them chocolates to show them how much you care about them. If we think about the details of the chocolates, we'll notice that you don't choose the amount of chocolates based on how hungry they are the cost is going to be chosen based on how much you need to spend to show that you care more than somebody who doesn't care as much as you. And if we think about the quality of the chocolate, your personal opinion about the quality of the chocolate and their personal opinion, if it's private, doesn't really matter much. What matters is a shared sense about what are good versus bad chocolates, shared not just by the two of you, but by an audience that you might be wanting to to verify that you in fact care about each other. So Uh, The idea is that our ancestors uh, would sometimes get injured or sick. And that was an especially vulnerable time for them because if you were going to dump somebody, that's the perfect time to do it. Then they can't retaliate very well. And in fact, they're going to be a lot of extra cost. So uh, the moment you suddenly get injured or sick is the moment you wonder, who's going to stay with me here? I'm now more of a liability for a while and this would be the easiest time to get rid of me. And so the people around you if they do want to stay with you, are especially eager to show you, no, we're going to stick with you. Don't worry. You're with us. We're going to take care of you. And that's a very heartwarming, touching <laughs> signal to get that they're going to stay with you and they're going to take care of you and they're not going to love you. And so they will do things. There are some things they need to do for you. They need to sort of bring you food and not take you around with them hunting and gathering because your leg is broken or something. They need to protect you from predators. They need to like, you know, keep you warm if that's an issue, whatever it is, they will need to do some things for you. But then they'll wonder, well, can I do more? Uh, Because, you know, over there they did a lot and that person sure felt reassured by what they did. And I'm looking for more things I can do to reassure my associates that maybe I come visit once an hour, maybe I wipe their forehead, maybe I tell them stories, right? I want to do more to show that I really am their friend and associate. And so the idea is that medicine grows out of that. Medicine is how you show the people who are sick or injured that you care about them and you want to take care of them and that you're not going to dump them. And so, of course, medicine will do some useful things and then it will just do more because like with the Valentine's chocolate, the amount is set by how much you need to show that you care and if there's that's more than they need, well, you give them more than they need because what they need is the reassurance.
0: And that's a big theme in a lot of your explanations is that idea of actions that seem to have one motivations are actually more about social signaling.
2: Right. So a lot of what we do because we are social creatures is to show each other our ability and our loyalty and to evaluate that in them and all the meta levels of I see your loyalty, et cetera. That's naturally what we should expect from a very social species whose main environment that mattered was each other and less the rest of the world. But we don't talk about it in those terms very often. So it's surprising, knowing our ancestry and where we came from, that we tend to deny these social motivations. We mm. don't tend to acknowledge very much that we do things to impress or to uh, to show loyalty to people. We often say, "I don't really care what other people think. That's not me."
1: <laughs> so I mean, one of the points you make a lot in the book is that these are not the stories or the explanations that we'd like to admit to ourselves because it's not very flattering (laughs) to ourselves. The stories that we've created, the motives that we believe we have are the more flattering ones, right?
2: Um, Although with medicine, it is striking that trying to show people you care about them, you might think would be a pretty flattering motive, but it is bragging.
0: Mm, Mm-hmm.
2: And right. so if you say, look, I care more about grandma than you because look at all the things I did for grandma that you didn't. Well, there's a bit of, you know, braggart there and we, we disapprove of that bragging. <laughs> so we have to say, I'm really concerned about grandma and that's why I'm doing this for grandma and not mm. that I'm trying to show you and everyone else that I care more than you. do.
0: Mm.
1: I think you, you write in the book that it, sometimes to, 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 covering this topic is kind of like... Ugh to kind of can deflate the energy in a room or it's kind of hard for you to go to cocktail parties because people don't want to talk about like the, the quote unquote real motivations. Um, and I was I was wondering when you were when you were writing this book and kind of coming up with your with your evidence here, um, were there examples that you didn't include or almost didn't include because you were worried it would be like too misanthropic or too unbelievable that people wouldn't want to acknowledge?
2: I think it might be more that some topics I just haven't studied because I don't want to get into. Them.
0: Wasn't some uh, topic that you were averse to dive into because you felt, ah, maybe, maybe not worth it. The- I don't
2: know. I mean, I can see a process by which some topics might've been pushed out of my view because I anticipated they might be too awkward. Sure. Two obvious examples are say marriage or parenting, right? Romance and parenting would be two examples. So, Parents are not that eager to look into their motivations regarding parenting. You know, So, for example, parents will tell their kids they need to have a bedtime and they will say that's for the kid's own good, that they don't stay up late. And it looks more like the parents just need some time for themselves, which is a completely reasonable thing. But they're just not quite so willing to admit that that's the agenda there. Um, and, of course, a great many things with respect to mating are things that we don't like to acknowledge. But we do, for example, a lot of mate guarding, that is to protect but we don't like to admit directly that that's what we're doing. And we also do sort of mate poaching or sort of keeping mates in reserve Mm. whereby somebody will, you know, they have a main partner, but they keep contact with somebody else because it's like, it's a a reserve. Like if this first one doesn't work out, they want to have the second one on tap, but they're not going to be so eager to admit that that's their role. But that's pretty awkward.
0: (laughs) Um, The the Medicare, the the medicine chapter, I thought was probably the most provocative, I thought, but... Maybe second place is your case about education.
2: Our chapter on education was cribbed from a colleague of mine, uh, Ryan Kaplan's book, The Case Against Education. And I should, by the way, mention that the book, Elephant in the Rain, is co-authored with Kevin Simler, an excellent co-author. It's not all my work. Uh, But education is also something that is just not as valuable as we think and not for the reasons that we say. If you ask people, why do you go to school? What's it for? What's the point? Like we alluded to earlier, the usual story will be learning stuff, useful stuff. Later on, I'll use this useful stuff and that'll be good. And if you look at the details of school, it just doesn't look like people learn very much. And what they do learn, they don't remember. And the things they remember aren't very useful. Nevertheless, people are going to school and getting paid more for it. So something's going on there. And the obvious answer is they're showing off. Showing off not just being smart, they're being conscientious, they're being conformist. And they're sort of adapting and learning modern workplace habits and styles. Um, So there's a lot of useful things in that sense, but they're not actually learning much useful. And of course, most people who've been out of school for a while know this. Mm. This is one of those things where people recognize it as you describe it, but somehow it's not acknowledged in the larger conversation.
0: Let's go a little deeper into those, the the motives that prevents us from reforming schools in a radical way. Why, Why do we still
2: buy into that system? So people do learn some things in schools and we've had many decades of researchers learning how to teach people things better, faster, and they've learned a lot. And there are big ways to learn more things faster. And in fact, schools have consistently just not been interested in adopting those. Teachers don't introduce them. Students aren't begging for them. And when teachers do try them, students don't think they're learning more and would rather do it the old way.
0: We're talking about things like not using grades and certainly not grading
2: students on the curb. Right, but people don't like to do that. The key idea would be to say, well, if we kind of know that we're there to show off, we're not really there to learn anything useful. Then it's less important that we learn something faster. What's just more important is that I, if I'm better, I do better better on the test than you do. As long as the existing system accomplishes that, then it's you know achieving its main function.
0: You point out that some of the the qualities that we get from this is the system of certification, basically weeding out the students that can actually survive and even thrive. In hierarchical situations, you call it domestication. There's a degree of certifying the domestication of um, young adults. And um, a point that you make that made me even chuckle while reading it, that a lot of the the bugs that we see in schools are actually features like Boredom. If, if students are bored, it just shows that they can survive the droning, work, <laughs> the droning right. workday.
1: One of the things I think you, I think you say uh, in your TED talk, I think it was, or maybe your TEDx talk, um, you say that to reform institutions, we need to give people something that pretends to give them what they pretend they want, but that actually gives them what they actually want. So could you give an example? Of, like, what would that look like?
2: So if you think about school reform, one kind of school reform is a school that teaches people things faster, where they learn more material, right? Which gives them more what they're pretending to want, which is to learn material, but it's not what they really want, which is to show something off. So if you want to design an alternative school, I think what you have to do is find a new way to show off that the existing schools aren't serving very well. So a candidate I have in mind is just being good in conversation like we're having right now. Some people could just be good on their feet in conversation and other people aren't. And most schoolwork doesn't credit that or even examine it much. Most schoolwork is reading and writing and listening to a lecture and et cetera, but not being on good on your feet in conversation. So if some people are potentially good on their feet in conversation or could become so with a little practice, then those people might want a school, let them show that off because then they do well there. If nobody's offering that, then you might want to offer such a school and then people might, Figure out they want to go there. Who are good at that, and then you might have a business. So, like,
0: so just to say, to make sure that I f- follow the the logic, you, we're pretending. I understand pretending to give people what they pretend to want. That's very clear in terms of our inability to be fully honest about what our motives are. So, uh, any institution needs to have some degree of incentives that talk to our our professed social projection of what we claim to want. But then the question is, giving what we actually want. Are we talking about what we want in, in our darkest selfish motives? Or are we talking about what we what we
2: want to want? So remember the president versus the press secretary scenario. Right. So right. The, inside you is the process that knows what you want and is will we'll, when when it sees the prospect of getting what you want, it will light up and go and and be willing to move toward that. But of course also listen to the press secretary saying, yeah, but you'll get criticized if you do it that way. Right
0: no what what i'm what i'm thinking about is that when we're actually working towards the the motivations of the president, we are acting from our most selfish interests, and when we're thinking about institutions don't we want to also consider a more idealized fantastical version of a social good maybe maybe such a thing doesn't exist, and maybe i'm, um, ah. I'm still too naive to even be talking about <laughs> this but but that's what i'm distinguishing between what we what we actually want as opposed to what we want to want.
2: So I I think of institution analysis at two levels. One would be attracting customers. Mm -hmm. And at that level, you have to give the customers what they want. And another level of institution analysis is how does a world where each person gets what they want go wrong? Mm -hmm. And there are ways in which that happens. And then we might think, how could we together restructure our society, tax things, subsidize things, ban things, whatever, so as to produce a world in which people are getting what they want, but where fewer things go wrong. So that's the sort of thing we economists specialize in. Uh, And it's harder to do that second part when people don't know what they want. So when everybody is aware of what they want, for example, so so say for example, uh, we're pissing in our water that we drink. And now everybody knows that they don't want to drink pissy water (laughs) and they're willing to say, yeah, let's reorganize our water supplies so that, you know, we piss downstream from where we get the water we drink because that's better for us all. So now we can see there's a way that we can all go wrong together. Just go grabbing water, wherever it's convenient, go pissing wherever it's convenient that that process can go wrong. And we could say, let's organize ourselves to make that not go wrong. That would be this higher level thing. But in order for that higher level thing to happen, we kind of all need to be able to know what we want and talk about it and coordinate, get the better thing. So the harder thing is to is to take a world where people are in denial about what they want and reorganize that to better get what we really One want. One of the
0: fundamental problems in any utopian vision of society is our inability in the first place to actually be honest about what we want to achieve in, in this group because we'll, we can come together. We want a society that all property is shared equally or that everybody is right. with dignity, but we don't really want that. We want a society where we feel good about our position in it and that we hopefully have a leg up over everybody else. And our inability to acknowledge that will always derail any attempt at a more, well, I mean, more actually, just
2: society. I mean, unfortunately, uh, people who are not honest with themselves about what they want can gain by advocating something they don't really want. If that produces more admiration and support on, in the people on around the
0: them. On the individual level.
2: Yes. And so we can all end up doing the thing that none of us want as we're all gaining individually by pretending to want the thing we all pretend to want. And then mm. we end up getting it, which isn't what mm. we wanted. <laughs> we just mm. each wanted to support it, but not have it win.
0: <laughs> can you give us an example of where we're motivated for selfish reasons, but end up actually in a good Equilibrium because of our pretenses.
2: Well, so, so, we talked about water quality. We might not, you know, what part of it, but we might think we like trees more than we do. We might say trees, those are just wonderful natural things. And it's so terrible that people keep cutting down trees. And you might say, let's make a tax on doing things with trees or let's subsidize more tree stuff. And we might say, yeah, I love trees too. I'm going to like, you know, push for this tree bill, and we're all going to push for the tree bill. And then, what we each want is to look good among each other for saying, "I sure like trees, don't you like trees?" Yep, we sure like trees. Mm-hmm. And then you get the bill passed, and then you get a lot more trees, <laughs>
1: <laughs> which oh, is I, actually net good, net positive.
2: You wanted some trees, but you just don't want that many trees. <laughs> you just wanted to be in favor of trees.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, we could take we could take cancellation as, as another example of that, right? So, I mean, a, a standard. Story is that mobs have long existed and that law is there as a way to fix a problem with a mob. So a thing that goes wrong with the mobs is that each person in the mob has the incentive when somebody comes to them and, and makes tells them a story and an accusation to sort of immediately endorse it and embrace it and support what this person... So some associate comes to you and says, I heard Joe did this terrible thing. Isn't that terrible? And your incentive is, well, they're looking for your support and you give it. <laughs> And so mobs tend to rush to judgment. That is, each person isn't trying to look at all the evidence, to some overall assessment. They're trying to sort of support the individual person in their social network who comes to them with it first. And then, you know, and whatever the people around them will reward them for, that's what they're going to do. And so the idea is that law is there to break that. So by law, we say, okay, you make an accusation, but now we're going to have a specialized judge or jury. and Their job is to listen to all the evidence and not make a decision until they've heard it all. And that and that breaks this problem with mobs. Whereas if if the mob deals with the problem, then if you get a big enough mob who've all heard that Joe Joe is terrible and they've all been outraged by it, then they all get together and they're big enough, and now they lynch Joe because that's what they all heard. Right? The mob could be wrong, because again, they're each not they're not doing a thorough analysis. They're each going on the rumor of the thing they just heard, but their local incentive is to to go along with that. So that's another example of a local incentive to you know, support the accusation and to be outraged by it and our collective desire to really find out the truth. Mm.
0: And right, but, but in the local way, they, they got both what they want, what they really wanted, but also what they pretended to want
2: in that case. Well, if you didn't actually want Joe to get lynched, then maybe Presum- you didn't get what you actually right, wanted. Right.
0: I'm presuming that if somebody is, is participating in the mob, at a minimum, they're indifferent to whether he gets lynched or
2: not. Well, they often the opposite. So in fact, I mean, as we see with current cancel culture, a bunch of people are jumping on someone. You think maybe they're going overboard, but your incentive is to go along, right? If you say, hey, everybody, shouldn't we slow down? And question, they will look at you and say, traitor. You go, I don't want to be accused of being a traitor. No, 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 you misunderstood me. Yeah, let's lynch him, right? <laughs> and so, you know, there can be a substantial degree to which you thought everybody should back off and slow down, but... You couldn't really say that. Should I was we...
0: talking laughter.
1: Oh, you want to talk about laughter? Yeah.
0: Okay. It's, it's a little different from the other social institutions that we've been talking about so far. So do you mind briefly talking about how your explanation of what laughter is differs from our more common sense understanding of it?
2: Laughter is a I'm still playing signal. So animals and humans play and play is marked off by a pretend sphere where We go through the motions of something real, but we all sort of know the stakes are lower and not very serious. But sometimes we can accidentally, I could pretend to insult you, but you might hit a little close to the mark and you might really get your feelings hurt, right? And you need to reassure me that, oh, it was fine. I didn't really get my feelings hurt. We're still still in playbook. And laughter is that thing you do to show me that. (laughs) And because I laugh and I don't feel threatened, you can laugh and not feel that you've hurt me and that we're out of play mode, we can reassure ourselves we're in play mode. And that feels really good. But we all say, yes, none of us were threatened. So we give the example, I think in the book of people laugh, laughing about don't drop the soap in the prison shower. Okay, like right? You think, gee, that's funny. That's about prison rape. How funny is that? But apparently it is funny. And the funny thing is that you see that you and I are not in prison. We don't know someone in prison. And so we're not Suffering this, so it's funny to us exactly because we can reassure each other that I don't feel threatened by that, and you don't feel threatened by that, so hey we're not threatened
0: right while well, reading that part i even I remember drawing uh, at the margin of the book a little graph that puts the intensity of the pain on one axis and the distance from the pain on the other. The closer you are. The more you want to limit the, the pain and the further it is, the, the further the joke is from you, the more you need right. to intensify the pain for
2: it to be funny. Yeah. Nobody laughs about the pencil lead breaking when you push too hard on the pencil, right? <laughs> Even if it's somebody else, it's, it's just not a big enough thing to be funny, right? You need a substantial harm to be funny about, right? But that needs to be to somebody else, not you.
0: What was revealing about this to me was just how intrinsically connected danger is to laughter. And especially when we're talking about you know, our, our hidden motives and the norms that try to constrain it, laughter has that inherently subversive power that, that pushes against the norms, or, or at least lets us, right. as, as you put it, um, laughter shows us the boundaries that society is too shy to make explicit. And that, that, that was a little profound insight. So,
2: so, again, I think play is useful because play lets you go through scenarios you will find rare in real life, right? So we like stories about terrorists or something, because we can imagine well, what would I do in this situation, we can see characters who do something and we can like, maybe learn, oh, that looks like that was a good idea. And then we're learning things about situations that we don't personally experience, right? And play is a version of that, I can chase you around the house and try to kill you in play mode. And I might learn something about what it would be like to chase somebody that I wouldn't learn in real life, because, you know, I get them in this play thing. So our world is social, so. We can learn a lot of things socially through play. We can find out what the rules are, because a lot of rules aren't written down or very clear, and certainly a lot of edge cases aren't very clear. And so, by playing, we can learn about what are the rules and which ones will be enforced and which don't. So, as, as you know, a lot of rules we have we don't enforce, and so it's often a big advantage to people to know which rules will be enforced and which rules are not, because then they can violate the rules that aren't enforced, and other people will will be at a disadvantage. You know, stupid, sincere people who just obey all the rules they're told. Well, they don't get that they're, they're holding themselves back. They don't have to follow all the rules.
0: Right. But what's interesting is that it's revealing of, of rules that we, we are sometimes uncomfortable acknowledging or putting to words. But laughter has that unbridled honesty that just immediately sheds a light or, or shows the contours of something that's there and maybe is ignored.
2: Right. You might have a work group where everybody says, look, we're all going to be honest here. That's the important thing in this work group. And there might be a hidden rule that you don't disagree with the boss. They're not going to say there's a rule that you don't disagree with the boss. That uh, You'll have to like figure that out for yourself. But laughter might reveal it. Like somebody says something a little critical of the boss and everybody laughs. And you're going, uh-huh. <laughs> you're next to something there. <laughs>
0: A version of this, there's a scene in Succession where the patriarch, the uh, Rupert Murdoch proxy sits down at a conference table with his family talking about who will have to be sent to prison or something. So it starts the conversation, and I want this to be an open, free-flowing debate. <laughs> and you laugh, like you watching it, you laugh right. because, you know, the absurdity of it. Hmm. Um, right. I think it's in- interesting socially now, right now, because we have this um, almost contradictory uh, uh, tendency, especially in, in corporate settings where we have more um, st- a tendency to stress that idea of let's be the open about whether it's your, your, your mental health or your social anxieties and all those things. Let's talk about them. Let's let's have another moderated discussion about those things. But at the same time, you belie some of it by the, the public outcry that comes at, at comedians when they try to poke fun at some of these insincere tendencies for openness those comedians get attacked. Well,
2: with recordings, what people said a long time ago, we're, we're now facing a somewhat novel situation where people at the time could have been correctly judging the local norms, mm. but then later on they can be found to be violating the new future norms. Mm. And now people will have to start to wonder a lot how much they can trust their judgment about the local norms and all future norms. Right. And I expect once people internalize that, they're just going to be a lot more cautious. Uh,
0: Either that or we develop a new norm where
2: there's, you know, a statute of limitation on statute of Right. Well, so and and we might comedy. develop that norm until we change, right? <laughs> that's the right. fundamental problem. Like, whatever the norms you think you have, right. they could change them later, right? They tell you there's a statute of limitations and they change their mind on the statute of right. limitations, right? So, like, uh, that's going to be an issue. Yeah,
0: and in and who knows what new sets of rules they'll be judged against in five
2: years. Right, right that's the whole point. You don't know, so you have, yeah. you have to protect yourself against all possible rules that people could be coming up with. Yeah, yeah. and so, and yeah. that may create incentive for now people to sort of move the rules around, right? Because now you can think, well, if we've got some rivals to take down, uh, you can look at sort of things mm-hmm. they did. You can say, well, let's just move the rules over here. That'll take this guy out. Yeah. That'll move the rule over here. And take that guy out. And like strategically move the rules around locally too target particular people based on what they once did
0: but that's also brings us to the point that that's the strength of humor because when we feel that dissonance of maybe over judging or almost unfairly reading things that are on the record our ability to evoke laughter is completely independent of the morals that we're trying to project and everything to do with 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 those tensions that we are feeling
2: well so i mean as you may know uh people have so far like you know, had a Zoom session where one person said something, and other people in the same session didn't object, <laughs> and both of them get canceled. You see, <laughs> so it's not just what you said; it's or even what you—it's what you didn't object to, right? And so, certain, and you might even say S- somebody chuckled. Look, they chuckled, right? And so, your laughter is potentially an offense.
0: Yes. Yeah. Well, yes, um, <laughs> Vanessa. I mean,
1: we're kind of at the end of
0: oh yes i just i wonder if you just want to throw a final
2: question i'm happy to just do a whole nother session if you'd like (laughs) okay you know what maybe maybe that's better because i did
1: want to open up like m's and the metaverse and like a lot of things to talk about but just yeah just talk
0: again okay Okay. that's that's wonderful we'll then we'll definitely pick you up on that all right then all right well wonderful thank you so much robin this is awesome thank you for talking Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. We're at uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're so inclined, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and share us with your friends and enemies. Until next time, stay sane.